Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Well, welcome everybody to the Must Read Alaska show. I'm your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. And we took a about a three to four week break off of uh, Christmas and New Year's and we hope uh, all of us here at Must Read Alaska hope that everybody had an awesome Christmas season and a great New Year's. And man, we got a lot of snow, at least where I live. And uh, I am very excited about our guest today. I'm going to do a brief introduction. I usually don't do an introduction, but man, we have such a rock star guest today. I feel like it uh, it is worthy of an introduction. We have Kimberly Strassel here with us today, and she is on the editorial board of uh, the Wall Street Journal, which is a huge deal. It's one of the probably the most prestigious um, jobs that somebody could have in journalism. And not only that is she is uh, a conservative, which is awesome. And she has a couple of New York Times bestselling books. She has a new book coming out uh, in the next several months that we're going to talk about today. But without further ado, Kim, welcome to the Must Read Alaska show. John, it is so great to be here. And I'm such a fan of Must Read Alaska. So it's an honor for me. Awesome. So tell folks, um, you know, some, sometimes up here in Alaska, it takes us a while to maybe read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. So tell folks about this column that you have. It's pretty fascinating. And maybe a glimpse behind the curtain on one of the one of your most favorite columns that you've ever written. Yeah, so uh, just a little bit more on the Wall Street Journal editorial page and the editorial board, because I think it's such a fascinating institution. And I have worked there pretty much my whole life. Um, I actually did work on the news side of the Wall Street Journal when I first uh, got my first job. And I was there for four or five years and then moved to the editorial page. And what some people might not know, we are we are a uh, conservative editorial page, which I think surprises some people when they find out that a major newspaper actually has such a thing. Um, and we have this excellent motto, which is free markets and free people. Um, well, it used to be free markets and free men. And then people like me started working there, so <laughs> it up a little bit. <laughs> um, but uh, and I do a couple of things. I help write the unsigned editorials, which are the opinion of the editorial board. But then, as you said, I have this column that comes out every Friday uh, online and in print It's called Potomac Watch. Um, and the idea behind it is that sometimes the editorial board spends a lot of time in its editorials writing about policy, what's good ideas and, and bad ideas. The column is meant, more meant to let readers know about the politics that is going on in Washington, not what people are doing, but why they are doing it. What kind of political game is being played? You know, what's the strategy here when they when they see a, a clip online or a, a soundbite? What do what people really mean by that and what games are being played? And so that's what I try to do every week. I try to remember that average Americans love politics. They want to be engaged, but they don't have the luxury that I do to just focus on it all day long. And so to the extent that I can help out people who are busy taking their kids to sports and trying to pay the bills just by making things a little bit more clear what's going on in Washington, that's the goal. Awesome. So you've written, uh, you know, we've had Obama, uh, Trump, and now Biden. Do you, have, do you recall maybe one of your 
most favorite columns that you've written and, and why does it stick out to you? You know, I actually have a, a series of favorite columns. I guess I would put them more in a, a category. I'm, I'm sort of most happy with and most proud of the, the columns we wrote and the editorials we wrote at the height of that whole Trump-Russia collusion fiasco that went on because even as a lot of the rest of the press corps was just accepting verbatim what former FBI officials were telling them. By the way, breaking the cardinal rule of journalism, you are always supposed to be skeptical of anything a government official tells you and always assume that someone's doing something naughty. That's why the press <laughs> exists, right? We're supposed to be the watchdogs. And so while a lot of them were just being spoon-fed, all of these crazy claims and writing about them, we we knuckled down and really started doing some research. And we were among the first to write that uh, this um, this opposition research group, Fusion, had been on the payroll of Hillary Clinton. You know, that's when things really started to break apart, too. Uh, for a long time, this was just claims that Russia, you know, has was somehow controlling Donald Trump. But the, the the real other part of the story was, in fact, the FBI's deep involvement in politics and its decision to engage in this dirty trick. And we helped, I think, bring a lot of that to light. So how do you keep the passion going when you're kind of an island on your own? It seems like, at least from the outside looking in, that journalism is flooded with folks on the left. And to find somebody right of center that is in a position like you're in is very far and few between. So how do you cope with that? How do you how do you be the energizer bunny to get up and keep keep moving along every day? Well, one thing I have to say, I am surrounded by amazing colleagues um, who are all just some of the brightest people and the best writers. And we have a lot of meetings every week. And so I get to kind of feed off their energy and hear what they're thinking. You know, we just had the other day, we had a fascinating discussion about the American pediatrics, uh, new recommendations to to give kids diet drugs. I mean, it's it's really interesting to listen to people who think deeply about stuff like that. So there's that. I'm also lucky that, you know, I, I don't live full time in DC. I'm out and about with real people, real people who, you know, are, are not in the Washington bubble. Uh, they're not in the echo chamber. You know, they're out there every day trying to pay the bills and uh, they have very different views than most people in Washington. And that's that helps me too, because this is a big fight, right? Like, I mean, it, it's a it's a struggle to get people to believe in free markets and liberty and, and the, to the extent that you can write things and it persuades people on ideas. I think that's just exciting. That's awesome. So you have a new book coming out. You are a New York Times bestseller, which is, uh, I think, awesome, an awesome badge to be holding up. You have a new book coming out about Joe Biden. Tell us about this book and uh, tell us where people can go check it out if they're interested. Yeah, so we're still like really early in this game. Um, uh, we do have a kind of working title. It'll be out this summer, but essentially it's it's something like the Biden malaise. Um, and the idea is it's going to make the comparisons, the eerie comparisons between Joe Carter or Jimmy Carter's time in office and Joe Biden's time in office, the bizarreness of the same problems they handled and the same issues on everything from energy to inflation to foreign policy fiascos. But it's also going to make the case that that's unfair to Jimmy Carter. <laughs> because, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter was handed a, a big steaming pile of problems and 
he he didn't make the best decisions and how he dealt with them. But he was also at a period of time where people were just starting to understand supply side economics. You know, there was there was a lot of things that he didn't. Now, Joe Biden has no such excuses. Uh, he actually lived through that. You know that he was one of the first senators, in fact, if not the first senator, to endorse Jimmy Carter's presidency. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> so he lived through it back then. Like he should totally know better than all the stuff he is doing right now because he saw how it worked then. And yet here we go. So what do you think uh, Joe Biden's legacy is going to be? I think you, you know, um, you have a book coming out about him. I'm sure you've written about him and you're calling. What do you think? You know, 10 years from now, people are going to look back and remember him for. You know, I think Joe Biden blew an incredible opportunity. Uh, he campaigned. What people remember him campaigning on are those two promises that he was going to get COVID under control. He was going to promise to do it better than the other administration. I mean, never mind that the other administration came up with the vaccine and everything, but fine. Said he was going to do COVID and do it better. And then he promised to unite the country. I mean, think back to that inaugural address. And he said that was his number one ambition. Um, he could have served as a sort of like caretaker president and given his long time in the Senate, reached out to Republicans and actually tried to kind of unite a polarized country. Uh, he just chose to blew it, blow it. And instead, he, he's like basically governed as the second coming of Bernie Sanders. Um, <laughs> and, and no. And, and you know what? Like, here's what I, I can't tell you exactly what his legacy will be, but here's what I hope his legacy will be. You know, we, we were just talking about Carter. I mean, we can all remember the Carter years, but do we remember what came after the Carter years? People were so put off by this experiment with radical liberal governance, which it was for that period of time, uh, that they elected Ronald Reagan and you had a generational political shift, you know, for, for decades to come. You know, I think that if he continues to mismanage the economy and if Republicans get a better class of candidate to run in some places, that there's an enormous opportunity to bring some new people into that kind of thinking. So what gets who's who's an exciting candidate for you as you think about, you know, potential presidential races down the road? Um, I think that Trump's going to be an awesome fundraiser for folks, but maybe not necessarily the, the best candidate as we have a DeSantis and those kinds of folks. Who to you is maybe an exciting candidate as you look down the road? So, you know, by the way, the editorial page never endorses anyone and I don't endorse anyone. Yep, so yep. I'm just going to say that up front. Now, I actually agree with you. I think one of the one of the great things that Donald Trump did for his party was remind them all that people want a fighter. Um, and I think that that was very important that the party understand that when it happened. Um, I do think that in the next election cycle, like I said, that there's an enormous opportunity for Republicans to bring in a lot of people under the tent that are unhappy. I mean, think about it. There's millions of Americans who have actually never seen inflation before in their life. You know, they, they're getting a new experience of just what it means when government mismanages things and operates badly. And I think that has got a lot of folks thinking. So there's an opportunity, but you have to have an effective messenger. And if you go back to Reagan, you know, what was so great about him? He was able to, he was the great communicator. He was able to really get across that message and bring people in. You have to ask yourself if Trump is a great communicator. And, you know, I think that that's kind of what's called for at the moment. And he's not really the guy. I also think people are a little concerned about older candidates at the moment, too, given Joe Biden. And, you know, Trump would be 
78 in 2024. I think I've got my math right there. Um, I think DeSantis is fascinating. Uh, his victory in Florida was unbelievable. And it was such an interesting contrast to what happened to, to Republicans at the federal level and in the Senate. Um, he won pretty much every demographic in Florida. He won the Hispanic <laughs> vote. He won the woman vote. He won the urban vote. By the way, like he won the, the rural vote, the suburban vote, and the urban vote. Like that's like Republicans just don't do that, right? So there's clearly something going on there. But uh, that being said, I know there are some Republicans who are advocating that everybody else just clear the field, let Trump and DeSantis do their thing, you know, to make sure that Trump doesn't divide a whole field of candidates and come out on top. I think that would be really sad for conservative voters. I think they there's a lot of talented young people out there. You know, Mike Pompeo is an example. There's some other governors out there, you know, Greg Abbott in Texas, Christine Ohm in South Dakota. Uh, there's some former Trump officials, Nikki Haley. There's some senators, Tim Scott. I think it would be really great for people to get to see all of them and make a choice. So new candidates would be awesome. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about the U.S. House for a second. What's your take on this? It's like um, we have to, you know, it's like, geez, we can't even organize people like, come on. What what as you watch this unfold for folks that don't know what we're talking about, the U.S. House has the majority Republicans and we watched them for the last, I don't know, week or two, try to organize 17 times, I think, and failed to organize, finally did. As you watch this unfold, what was your thought process? Yeah, Kevin McCarthy finally became speaker on the 15th vote. Um, yeah, and I only know that because I had to watch them all. And so it's seared <laughs> into my brain. Um, yeah, uh, 15th vote. Look, I think it's great that they finally managed to get their act together and come together. Uh, just a couple of thoughts on that process. I think that the people who were holding out against McCarthy originally began with good intentions. The House is very dysfunctional, and they wanted a bunch of rules changes that decentralized control from the Speaker's office, returned it back to where it should be. You know, the committees, we need to have amendments, debates, all that stuff that basically went away under Nancy Pelosi in particular. Uh, no more of these horrible omnibus bills that are, you know, concocted in some back room and dropped two days before they have to be passed and no one has time to read them. But it kind of ended up at, by the end becoming a little bit more of a power play for themselves, and it went on too long. And that's what worries me a little bit about this is, yes, they got through this moment, but there's going to be a lot more moments. And when you only have a four-vote majority, which is all Kevin McCarthy has, you can see how easy it is for a small number of members to disrupt the apple cart. Yeah. So it's going to be to their benefit to stay united on things. Uh, I just, I'm a little worried by what we saw here in the beginning. And it's not going to matter so much. You know, yeah, they passed their IRS defunding bill and they had unanimous support. But, you know, those are the easy kind of messaging bills. The question is going to come when the debt ceiling vote comes up and stuff that must pass through both the House and the Senate. And remember, Democrats still run the Senate. Uh, and they're going to have to be united in what they want and, and what they're willing to give on. And if they can't, the, all the headlines the next two years are going to be about a divided Republican Party. So do you think that they have a chance of the House has a chance of passing any bills? Because I think a lot of folks think, oh, great, we're the majority now, but they don't realize. And sometimes I often forget, well, the Senate's <laughs> is led by the Democrats. And you can pass it in the House, but have fun in the Senate. What's a realistic expectation of the House, 
you know, being able to pass bills like the defund the IRS and those kinds of things. So they're going to pass them and they're going to be messaging bills, right? I mean, there's going to be a lot of these in which the Republicans are basically trying to lay out for Americans what they would do if they did have control of the White House and the Senate. You know, and that's a good exercise to engage in because parties should have to explain their agendas. Uh, But they're not going to get, you know, Joe Biden's not about to sign a law cutting his IRS enforcement, you know, in half. So they're not going to go anywhere. The the ones to watch are the ones that I just said absolutely do have to pass. So government funding bills, right? Appropriations bills. Uh, We're going to hit the debt ceiling here soon, and we're probably going to have to lift the debt ceiling. Uh, Republicans don't want to do that unless there are some uh, cuts in domestic spending. Um, and th- the question here is the, the smart way to do this is what they just did at the end of last year. We had something called the National Defense Authorization Bill that has to go through. That's a must pass piece of legislation. Um, and Republicans essentially said, uh, we're not going to sign on to that bill. You guys need it. You Democrats need it in the Senate and the White House. You want it. We're not going to sign on unless you give us this demand. And their demand was to get rid of the vaccine mili- mandate in the military. Yep. Okay, it was a reasonable demand and it was something that they could really pressure the White House. And so they got their demand. That's what they need to be doing with these upcoming bills is not asking for the moon because you can't have the moon when the Senate and the White House are held by the opposing party. But you can exercise your your leverage and your power that you have in the House to get some incremental gains. That's going to be their best bet. We'll see if everybody agrees with that. (laughs) So uh, switching gears, Kim, you know, arguably you're one of the most successful conservative journalists that lives today. Who's been a hero to you? Who's been somebody that you've looked up to over the years as you maybe started your um, journalism career or, you know, to get you to where you are now? Oh, lots of people. I mean, look, I know this is a kind of a something everyone says, but it's just true. Like my parents were are, are amazing people. My dad passed away about five years ago, but all the things that end up making any of us successful, you, me, anyone else, you know, you know, hard work, Uh, morals. Um, You know, I think they gave me a lot of my conservative thinking, not necessarily because we talked about it all the time at the dinner table, but just because they sort of lived it, right? Uh, They were very self-reliant. They didn't expect anybody to sort of look after them. Uh, They just wanted government to stay out of their way. My dad was a small business owner. So that um, uh, I have been very blessed to know other prominent writers and learn from them, guys like George Will, for instance, um, who, you know, his, his column every every week is, if I could write that well, man, who knows? Um, <laughs> um, but also, I mean, I have to say, and this is not just my second, you know, my boss, Paul Gigot, is one of the most talented editorial and opinion writers in the country. And I have been so lucky over the last, like, uh, you know, 20 years. Um, one, one of my first jobs at the editorial page was actually editing him when he had the column I have now. So I have I've learned a lot from him over time. Full circle. (laughs) So what's some advice you'd give to somebody? There's going to be somebody listening in here and maybe they want to become a journalist or a writer or or something in, in that kind of genre. What's your advice to give to somebody who's in college or in high school looking to take this on as a career? You have um (laughs) you've dominated the industry. Like I said, you you're one of the most successful journalists, conservative journalists, there is. 
what's your advice to folks who want to become what you're doing? Well, first of all, you're very kind. I'm not quite sure that's the case. But, um, uh, so, you know, one thing I would say to people, it's a lot easier these days to be a pundit, you know? Uh, I think it's very tempting. People can go on Substack or have their own blog and 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 kind of give their opinions to everybody. Um, I always try to remember remind people of a couple of things, which is if you really are in the business of of, of opinions, ideas, what's your goal? Is your goal just to kind of vent and let everybody know how unhappy you are about this situation, or is your goal to persuade other people? to your way of thinking, you know, persuade him of the value of the ideas that you believe in. You know, that's what I feel my job is. Um, And so I guess my advice to younger people, especially if they wanted to go into political journalism or or opinion journalism, um, is to remember that the best way to actually convince people of your ideas is to make a good case. And that involves facts. And so actually go out and learn to report. You know, one of the things not everybody knows about the journal editorial page is we are a reported editorial page. I spend as much time, if not more time on the phone, talking to people who are experts in what they do and getting facts and figures to put into my opinion writing and editorial writing as I do writing anything. Um, And I'm lucky that I got to spend that first five years on the news side of the journal because I learned a lot of reporting skills. Um, And so if you want to get into this, I know the temptation is to just immediately put your face out there and your name out there, but go work for a local newspaper for a while. Get a job actually being a reporter, learn how to pick up the phone, find information, and that's going to make you a much better uh, political pundit and writer in the future. Awesome. Well, I've saved the best part for last. We're going to post this in our Facebook uh, copy is we're giving away uh, three books today that are going to be signed by Kim and a special note made out to the folks that win. And all you have to do to enter is to either tag somebody in this post or share the post. If you do both, those are two entries, and I'll draw uh, the winner probably, uh, let's say, Saturday, this Saturday. Usually, typically, we have, I don't know, a couple thousand people that are entered in to win. So, um, again, to win a book, uh, by Kim signed with a little special note. All you have to do is tag a friend in this or share the post or do both and you'll have two entries and you could win a book. Kim, before we leave, any last thoughts or last minute words before we head off here? Well, just to clarify, by the way, too, this is not the upcoming book, uh, but yeah. one of the two I wrote in the past, which one of is on the silencing of free speech and one is on uh, the, the the breaking of standards and norms uh, by Democrats during the last administration. Um, but no, just uh, by the way, this is a great show. Um, you guys do such an amazing job of covering uh, Alaskan politics and making people more aware. So um, like I said, it was a huge honor to be on with you. And uh, I love the podcast, too. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much. Everybody who's tuned in, thank you so much for listening, watching and reading Must Read Alaska. It's uh, We do this for you all. If you really like what you listen, watch or read, uh, go to mustreadalaska.com. On the right-hand side, there's a donate button. We survive off of $5, $10, $100 donations. Unfortunately, we and fortunately, we are not funded by some dark money like other news organizations <laughs> in Alaska. We survive off of uh, donations by everyday folks that live here in Alaska. So, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome back anytime. And I want to tell people, go to Amazon, 
and um, go find her books and go buy a couple because man, they're awesome. So looking forward to when the next book comes out and uh, everybody have yourself an awesome day. Thanks, Kim. Thank you.